0: Hello, and welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration, refugee, and population issues brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I am Rachel Reyes, CMS's Director of Communications. This podcast is the second of a two-part series we've entitled Shaping a Nation, the Past and Present Struggles Over Immigration. Many may be wondering the who, where, what, and why of the ongoing immigration debate, in particular the history of some of the more restrictionist attitudes, compared with today. To discuss this issue, I sat down with Sara Campos, an immigrant rights lawyer formerly with the Northern California Immigrant Rights Coalition. She is also the author of The Influence of Civil Society in U.S. Immigrant Communities and the U.S. Immigration Debate, which is in the 2014 book International Migration, U.S. Immigration Law and Civil Society, published by CMS and the Scalabrini International Migration Network. Welcome, Sarah. Can you start by describing your chapter and by discussing for our listeners what exactly is meant by civil society?
1: Well, that's a very good question, and lots of there's a lot of debate about what what exactly is civil society. Um, in in a lot of well, in internationally and um, abroad, people often use civil society um, to talk about um, you know organized uh, groups that uh, work together a- alongside government so it's sometimes people define it as what it's not you know it's not government um, but it's people join together to work towards a common cause um, and in this country we don't talk so much about civil society as much as movements um, and um, and here you know in this chapter I talked about the immigrant rights movement um, and its counterpart you know the more the Um, anti-immigrant groups uh, that formed, you know, that are more restrictionist um, in nature.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the different political movements over the years that have been mobilized around the issue of immigration in the United States?
1: Sure. Uh, What what I did with this chapter was begin um, in the late uh, 19th century um, when there was quite a bit of nativism um, and a lot of restrictionist laws being passed, like the Chinese Exclusion Act, and uh, looked at what you know what were the forces, what were the groups that were really rallying behind immigrants, and the consistent groups were generally labor, um, the Catholic Church, and civil rights organizations. I you know later looked at uh, what was happening post nine eleven, you know in the mid. 2000s, uh, there, was, there was a lot of activity um, on both sides, you know, and in the mid 2000s there was legislation. There was both positive legislation that would have led to some sort of legalization as well as some very restrictionist um, legislation introduced by James Sensenbrenner, um, I think, I believe from Wisconsin that, you know, that prompted just tremendous outpouring of, you know, activity with, within the immigrant rights movement. There were marches, I don't know if you remember, but there were marches of hundreds of thousands of people. And many people thought that that would lead to some sort of legislation. Um, and sadly, it didn't, you know, and, and it, the effort continued to stall. Um, but I think that one of the things that happened was the Dreamer movement that really breathed new um, fresh air, I guess, into the whole, into the movement um, and resulting in DACA and most recently uh, to administrative relief. I don't think, and probably people debate this, but I don't think that President Re- President Obama wa- was planning on on. On enacting, or not enacting, but of of issuing administrative relief. He said numerous times he did not have the power to do it. And the fact that he actually issued this form of relief I think is a testament to the movement. Everywhere he went, activists were demonstrating. Um, He was called the Deporter-in-Chief by Janet Murria, And the fact that he went, he moved from being in a in a place where he said, I don't have the power to do it, to actually, in November of 2014, issuing this form of relief is a testament to the movement. Now, it's also, we can see, you know, the other, the other side of this, the folks that are uh, more restrictionist in thinking about immigration have have power also you know we can see that numerous states um governors decided to file suit against against the president preventing administrative relief from going forward so the movements on both sides there's this tense of quality there's this attempt to obtain rights and then there's this counter um attempt to to keep you know keep immigrants from gaining legalization and um I think both sides have become really sophisticated. The the groups, I would say, the three major groups on you know the, restri- the restrictionist side are the Federation for American Immigration Reform, the Center for Immigration Studies, and Numbers USA. And in particular, Numbers USA has. A tremendous, you know, tremendous lists of people, and, and, and a mo- an amazing mobilization power that they still influence. Their numbers ebb and flow, and there was a period there a few years ago. I think the Southern Poverty Law Center um, did some studies looking at what are the numbers? Are they are they growing? Are they are they, um, contracting? And um, they seem to be they for a time they seem to be shrinking. I don't I don't know exactly where they are right now. But um but they remain a powerful force. I think that some of the folks in that movement and, and now I'm recalling there was um there was some corruption and there were there were people that were arrested for I don't know if you recall that it was a murder in I wanna say Arizona or Texas in which I, I think people that were involved with the Minutemen shot at some immigrants, um and so there was a a movement kind of faltered there for a while. Um, what I understand or what I've read is that a lot of the the Minutemen and the 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 various uh, groups have kind of channeled their energies into the Tea Party, and um, the Tea Party has put a focus on immigration. And I think that's where we are right now. I think that's why Donald Trump is talking about immigration because there's this you know there's a big force that wants to talk about it, wants to put up a wall, wants to make sure that people that have been here for a long time don't get legalization. It's a pretty nasty word. Amnesty is just really is condemned, you know, within the restrictionist movement.
0: And for the listeners, can you explain what people in the immigration field define as restrictionist?
1: Well, I think they would see restrictionism or restrictionists as people who are anti- legalization, anti-rights for immigrants. We have, we're have we in this funny place where, in our country, where we accept immigrant labor, we accept undocumented labor or unauthorized labor from people who have come here and they don't have proper documents or they've come here with proper documents and stayed. So we, we accept their labor, but we don't provide for their full-fledged rights not even for relief from deportation. And for so many families, you know, and people, we, we talk about um, 11 million undocumented people living in the United States. So many, so many people live with this fear of deportation. And because they don't have proper documents, must work under the table, work dangerous positions, dangerous jobs. And... Um, so the restrictionist would keep people who are in this situation in that same place and using their labor. And, and I, I should say that there's, there's debate within their movement as well that some people don't want unauthorized people doing these jobs at all. They prefer Maybe they'd prefer Americans to do these jobs. Um, they'd prefer the, situ- the economy to work in a different way. Um, other people, I think businesses, might be more than happy to have immigrant labor engaged in the way it is. But so I, I, I wouldn't say that they're a monolith in any way. There are differences and uh, nuances within within those groups.
0: Given the political climate of today, do you think these restrictionist groups have gained more traction?
1: I think they've lost traction, actually. I think the, their numbers have dwindled. Um, I think that there was a pretty sophisticated effort by the Southern Poverty Law Center to look at FAIR and investigate them. And the New York Times published a front-page Sunday um, article about FAIR and its ties to eugenics and John Tanton. And that exposition, I think, really hurt them. But whether those organizations are still thriving... The Tea Party is there, and the Tea Party has made immigration um, you know, one of their platform issues. And so I think we can expect this, this issue to move in, moving into the presidential election. It is, it's an issue that's, that's going to be talked about, um, and that's going to be debated on either side.
0: So you wrote about how many of the pro-immigrant groups have worked together, but also how they have different political affiliations, or perhaps how they are not politically affiliated at all. Can you explain how groups have worked together to influence immigration law and policy?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, whenever you have big groups, you know, you're bound to have differences within them. And I think um, that's very true within the immigrant rights movement. There are organizations that are more mainstream that forge coalitions with um, more conservative groups. And the legislation is an example of that, you know, where organizations in Washington and affiliates throughout the country really um, got behind that legislation. And others, you know, that are, that were perhaps a little more progressive. I'm not sure that that's the right term, but organizations that are more worker-oriented, um, disagreed and said, no, we, we're, we're not for this legislation. This isn't going to get us anything that we don't. Maybe this will get us some legalization, but it is it is illusory. It may not happen, um, and, and, and poked a lot of holes in it. I think how do they work together? We're in a, in a moment, I guess, where because of communications the way they are, people can communicate With each other across the country, and I have to say that the Dreamer movement has is had a wonderful effect in maybe bringing these folks together, or bringing working with the folks in D.C. as well as folks in outlying areas. Because Washington may have a perspective, but the border people who live at the border have a a different perspective. Obviously, they're living it. They're um, or people in states where they're, you know, they're not um, without progressive laws. I live in California, and I, I see numerous, not, I wouldn't say numerous, but protections aimed at immigrants. Driver's licenses, um, higher education available to immigrants, domestic worker rights, um, the Trust Act, uh, pieces of legislation that um, make it more livable here in, in California, New York, um, other, other states um, have these laws, but there, there's some where it's, it's just not available. And undocumented or unauthorized people get pulled over constantly and end up in the whole deportation machine and get separated from their families.
0: Prop 187 was a 1994 ballot initiative to establish a state-run citizenship screening system in California. When Prop 187 was passed, how did civil society actors respond?
1: Um, well, starting with one, 187, I, th- I think it's a, a really interesting uh, piece of legislation to look at historically, because California at the time was very divided and it's, you can you could see that with that legislation because we were in California it's a the most populous state in the Union with a huge population of Latinos Asians and um, before passage there were major efforts uh, among coalitions of immigrant rights groups to to work against it It Passed pieces of it went to court were never enacted. Actually, were never um, implemented. But one of the things that it did is mobilize people. It mobilized people to um, naturalize, to vote, and some legislators think that if they had, if they had done organizing in the, you know, in within the party, they wouldn't have done, would not have done as much good for the party, for the Democratic Party as this legislation did. Um, There was almost a backlash, and people began voting, and and as at the same time, the numbers, the demographics began changing, um, such that it's a minority majority state, and um, that kind of legislation could not succeed today. The same thing happened after passage of the PRO-RA and the IRA-IRA anti-terrorism legislation, the, the trio of laws in, in 97, especially when the welfare law went into effect. And it looked like numerous legal residents, refugees, seniors would be cast off without any sort of support system or very little support system. And people, again, naturalized and began um, registering to vote in droves. There were big efforts in the movement to get that done, but it was, you know, it was coming from communities wanting to express themselves at the, at the ballot box.
0: Given the political climate today, with certain political candidates making comments that could be identified as xenophobic or anti-immigrant, do you think some of the rhetoric could affect the election?
1: I think it very well could. I mean, I think that who hasn't heard of Donald Trump right now? And who hadn't, hasn't heard some of his statements, both against Muslims, against Mexicans, women, <laughs> you know? Um, so, and the country has, is changing demographically. And I, I think that depending on what happens, people will come out. People are incensed by this, um, by that rhetoric. And it, it, it's, it's really poisoned the discourse it's interesting. I, people have been having debates about, well, this is how people feel, come out of the closet, so to speak, in terms of their, you know, nativism or racism. But other folks feel this has just really poisoned the discussion so that there are people who would maybe felt this way and, and knew that this is, this is something you keep inside, you know, you don't express such hatred, but it's made it okay. You know, to see these examples of people pouring coffee over a Muslim man who's praying, or epithets or saying it's okay to kill Muslims right now—I mean, that that kind of kind of rhetoric is there's really no place for for that. So, so yeah, I I, I do think that there's the possibility that people will come out in force, you know, for, again for registering votes, uh, registering voters, and um, and naturalizing too.
0: Can we discuss what restrictionists may be doing in driving a wedge between African-Americans and immigrant communities?
1: Well, for a long time, the uh, restrictionist would bring up a notion that immigrants were taking away jobs from native-born Americans. And it's less possible now to take those stances, in large part, I think, because there are organizations such as Black Alliance for Just Immigration that have been created to talk about just just what are you talking about, just just what is happening with these jobs, and how does immigration affect our communities, our black communities they 're really an important organization to have as part of the community of immigrants, um, because what what ends up happening often or what ended up happening in the past was you know there was a pitting up against each other of immigrants, brown people versus black people. This organization, Baji, was able to say, you know, we really are in the same boat here. Let's not fight for scarce jobs, let's work together, and kind of untangling um, some of that rhetoric. And back in the 90s, there were fewer studies. Now we, we know, we, we have studies that talk about the influx of immigrants in communities helps everybody, it creates jobs. Um, it creates jobs that native-born Americans can do. It lifts up the standard of living, so um, we're able to rely on that. And those, those studies and those issues get put in their proper place. So it's still a work in progress. Browns and blacks working together, but from where I sit, I see more the evolution of more organizations attempting to work together to build a bigger tent to include. African Americans into the movement for immigrant rights organizations to attend Black Lives Matters events and demonstrations and to be in solidarity with each other. So I see that as a high point. I see that as a as a very hopeful for the for the movement as it moves forward.
0: What do you think is the purpose of creating solidarity between Black Americans and immigrants?
1: Um strength in numbers, strength in, and not just a numbers bit in, in the histories um, recognizing that some of the things that immigrants go through are similar to the kinds of things, the kinds of discriminations that African Americans face I've heard African American leaders say, I get it, I get this kind of discrimination, I've lived it all my life, so when I see it against other people, I, I recognize it so there's a strength in recognizing the narrative, recognizing that the, the, it's the same story.
0: Excellent. Thank you again, Sarah, for joining us on this episode of CMS On Air. And this concludes our two-part series, Shaping a Nation, The Past and Present Struggles Over Immigration. To learn more about the historic role of civil society in impacting U.S. immigration law and policy, check out Sarah's chapter in the book, International Migration, U.S. Immigration Law and Civil Society, available for purchase by emailing us at cms@cmsny.org, at cmsny.org. And of course, to stay up to date on the Center for Migration Studies of New York, including our research projects, publications, events, and video, visit us at cmsny.org.